This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at uctv.tv slash careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and those in career transition bridge to better employment. It's good to see so many people out here that I know, so thanks for coming. It's pretty much impossible to go to one of these events and not... Uh, have some experts debate uh, how long it will be before robots take over our jobs and we're relegated to a life of servitude and universal basic income. Um, And they can opine, and we're not going to do that today, so you're welcome. But the one thing that pretty much all experts and labor market economists and workforce development people think about and talk about and agree on is how important lifelong learning is um, for our world today in the 21st century innovation economy. And um, the days of going to high school, um, getting your degree, um, and then working in your job for the rest of your life and retiring uh, are certainly look to be over. And lifelong learning is the name of the game. So how do we pay for it? There's a lot of good things going on with the community college system um, around free community college. And so our community college colleagues in the room, a little shout out. Your work is commended and needs to be supported and accelerated. Um, Other ways that we pay for lifelong learning is we ask families and workers to pay for it out of pocket. Um, There's federal grants uh, and there's loans. So let's talk about those three things real fast. Uh, You heard it from Elizabeth. It's becoming increasingly hard for California families um, to pay for upskilling out of pocket. Four out of ten Californians are living in or below poverty. And we are in first place in the, in the country in that. We actually have the, most, um, the highest percentage of, of families living in poverty of any state in the United States when you adjust for housing costs. Many of these working families, are, or many of these families are actually working. 80% of these families are working. And so they're one root canal away or one fender bender away from financial ruin. So asking these families and these workers to finance their upskilling so they can get their piece of the 21st century innovation economy um, is, is not just bad for those families and those workers, but it's bad for business as we kind of fight this global war for talent with one hand behind our back. The other way we think about upskilling and worker retraining is federal grants, and this is a big piece of our business. Peter has talked about it. We um, fund millions of dollars over the last 40 years in worker retraining grants for upskilling. Over the last 17 years, there's been about a 50% cut nationwide in those funds. And so the ability for us to continue to finance that is going down while the need for lifelong learning is going up. And, you know, advocacy and budgets and trends and forecasts are all kind of political and business exercises until you kind of see the human being on the other side of it. And that's what I had a chance to do recently. Every year, our research team, we survey every single person, the thousands of people leaving our job centers. And we get pretty good response rates, actually. We had about 1,400 people responded and said, we asked them two simple questions. And one of them is, were you satisfied with the services you got? Uh, 85% said yes, which is pretty good as these things go. And 15% said no. I read every single one of the the comments of those 15% of the people who said no. And uh, one trend stood out. The, the biggest reason why people were not satisfied with their services is because we ran out of money to fund for their lifelong learning and their upskilling. And this particular uh, open-ended comment stood out to me, and I'll, I'll let you read it, uh, but it, it just absolutely broke my heart. Like this, this young lady, this was in November 2017, she said, uh, you know, I did a career aptitude test. I confirmed my desire that my uh, 
my skills and interests and values aren't aligned with the, my current career path. I want to make a switch. I want to continue to learn. Um, I was also eligible for training, and, and for those of you know who are in this business, most eligibility is driven by poverty or severe barriers to employment. So this person really needed this, um, but we couldn't provide the training because we didn't. We ran out of money, and this is happening increasingly as the federal budget continues to be cut for this type of work. So that's the way two. Way three is loans. It's a big problem here. There's $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. I think um, myself and many of you in the room are probably still carrying student loan debt, and you have your own horror stories in your family about, um, about student loans. And it doesn't, no matter what, where you get your news, it doesn't really, um, you don't have to look very hard to see the impact of the student loan debt, not just on families and our economy, but, um, or not just on families and workers, but on our economy as a whole. And it, it turns out that uh, student loan debt is actually perpetuating historical wealth gaps um, by gender, by race, and ethnicity. One example is uh, new research is kind of piling up that black student debt holders um, are 150% more likely uh, to have more than $100,000 worth of debt. $100,000 worth of debt. So kind of just to talk about some of these big trends and to sum them up, you got the need for lifelong learning is, is increasing to be successful in our economy. The ability for family and federal grants to pay for it is going down, in California in particular. And the student debt crisis is hurtling towards um, what's probably going to cause our next recession. And so kind of when you think about some of those mega trends, and when you hear the story of the young lady who said, you know, I, I needed a career change, but I just couldn't get it. There wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity for me. We have to develop another option. And the one that we've been looking at for the last 12 months with some partners that you'll hear about is called income sharing agreements. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. And at a very basic level, what an income sharing agreement is, is that um, if I'm going to go upskill, let's say I'm going to go try to learn coding and the cost is $10,000, instead of me paying for that out of loans or my own pocket, a third party, the school itself, philanthropy or uh, impact investor, will front the cost of that, that, my education, and I agree to pay X percentage of my, my, um, my income uh, over a set given period of time. Um, and there's a couple other key terms that uh, make this really interesting for us. One is a minimum income threshold. Um, so there's a predetermined level that if you're not making above a certain amount, um, you don't pay a dime on that given time period. Um, the second kind of big important term is the payment cap. Um, so if you do really well after your, your program, your education, and you're making $200,000, dollars $400,000, you're not going to pay an exorbitant amount because there's going to be a payment cap that's, that's pretty clear, and I'll talk about how we're thinking about that in a second. Um, the fourth kind of really important definition of an income sharing agreement is the payment term. How many payments will you make? That one's pretty simple. And then fourth is the payment window. How long uh, is this income sharing agreement in effect? Um, and when that payment window is over, whether you've paid not even the original balance or nothing at all, um, the, the obligation is, is, is over. And so we are kind of really thinking about this for, one, for a lot of specific reasons, but the thing that really got me interested in this, kind of thinking about some of those megatrends, is that the student debt system, like many of our uh, kind of mainstream financial instruments, are inherently regressive. Uh, those who take out loans and go through programs and do the worst after that program in the labor market and make the least money end up paying the most as they miss payments or make minimum payments and interest and fees stack up. They end up paying the most. And those who go through the program and do the best and make the most money end up paying the least because they pay 
they pay their principal off really quickly. Um, ISAs, by contrast, um, with the protections that I'm gonna t- I just talked about, are inherently and philosophically f- progressive. Those who go through the program and make very little or nothing at all pay very little or nothing at all. And those who go through the program and it does the best for them uh, pay the most uh, uh, with the payment caps. And so, like by their very nature, they're really, really interesting because they, for the first time, not for the first time, but for a really specific way, they actually link the cost of higher education and lifelong learning with the value that it provides the student um, in the labor market after the fact. And we were really interested in linking that cost to value. Um, so that's kind of ISAs generally, and they're not new. I, the, I think the University of Purdue, University of Indiana, is, is one of the biggest um, uh, examples. They've financed over $10 million, I think, of ISAs for hundreds of students, and the returns are, are looking pretty good, and dozens of other universities are, are jumping on board over the last couple of years. Um, but in San Diego, we've partnered about nine months ago. We, we worked with UCSD Extension to explore what this could look like in, uni- in workforce development. Um, and before, there's a lot of decisions to be made when you're trying to model one of these programs. And so we said, before we get too much into the details, like let's think about some things that are non-negotiables so that ISAs, if, launched in San, if and when launched in San Diego, are really going to make good on that progressive promise that they potentially offer. Um, and so we put some stakes in the ground. We said, number one, that minimum income threshold has to be informed by the local cost of living. Um, and so what we said is that no, even after a payment, we're never going to ask someone to make a payment if we don't dramatically change their economic situation, even after those payments are recouped back to us. And so in San Diego, that looks like if someone's not making $40,000 or more after the ISA, we're not, we're, we're not going to ask them to pay a dime. Uh, two is the payment caps are in line with student loans. So when you think about the overall payment ratios of student loans, or even federally subsidized, they're about 1.4 to 2.0, uh, meaning if I borrow $10,000 of student loans, I'm paying between $14,000 and, and $20,000 back at the end of the day. We're going to set our payment caps for the highest earners, um, depending on the program, in that range. And so we're not taking exorbitant fees from those who are doing the best. And when I say taking, I'll talk about it, but we're actually talking about paying it forward for the next people going behind them. Third, and this one's, this one's important, no credit checks. You know, being poor is really expensive. Being poor is also really bad for your credit score. And we fundamentally believe that uh, kind of past financial history should not dictate someone's future opportunity and future prosperity. And so we're not going to have credit checks um, eliminate anyone from participating in programs funded by ISAs. In criminal history, we do a lot of work in the reentry system, and we're going to work one-to-one with every single person um, coming out of the, every single one of our returning citizens who might be interested in this um, and seeing how we can kind of design the program that, that meet, best meets their needs. And then it's on us to work with progressive hiring managers who are willing to give returning citizens um, a second chance. Um, and then fifth, we're really focused on competency-based um, requirements to get into some of these programs. And so we want to really shift how we think about talent away from pedagogy, i.e. where you went to school and, and how, you, how you paid for it, and towards competency. What, can you do the job, and do, you have, and do your skills have labor market value? And so entrance examinations into some of these programs that I'm about to talk about are going to be really focused on competency. Um, and last, and I think really important as we kind of talk about this uh, kind of radical inclus- inclusive model for ISAs, is built-in career services. And so baked into the, most ISAs really just cover the classroom training costs, 
but we're building in a wraparound supportive services to help someone um, continue with their career during the education piece, but then afterwards with job placement um, and even a small fund for barrier busting things like uh, you know transportation or interview clothes and that kind of thing. So that we're oftentimes we find with some of the hardest to serve populations, the most valuable thing about our services are not the classroom training that we might be able to pay for, but it's the human connection of someone believing in you, pushing you forward, and getting past some of these barriers, and not. Not only is that good for the family and the student, but it's also actually good for the health of the fund if we're trying to talk about creating a fund where people are paying it forward. Um, and so we think that's really important. And so we did a lot of work. We crunched a lot of numbers. We're working with UCSD Extension and uh, a group called Vimo to help model some of this for us that does a lot of the ISAs all across the country. Um, and we, have, we, we came up with a, a term sheet for one of the programs we're looking at. I, I won't read it all to you. You can see it. But this is what it looks like. Um, from like, And you would compare that to a student loan. And I did. I went to uh, many of the individuals in one of our programs we call Tech Hire. And we said, hey, like, how does this stack up with your experience? Is this something you'd be interested in? And I focus group with about 12 people. And a couple things stood out. One, they understood the concept. Um, hopefully you do, too. They understood the concept faster than I could explain it. They said, oh, yeah, my payment rate's this. My, OK, like payment caps, this. OK. Um, so that surprised me. Number two, they all had their own story about uh, student loans or paying out of pocket for some kind of education uh, after high school or college that just did not turn out. And that's why they're, they're coming to us. Um, one woman in particular, uh, she's, she's in her 30s, I think, and she kind of, she looked at me and she was kind of ma- like visibly upset and she was kind of recounting um, how she, and then she told me how she went to her family, her parents and her aunts and her uncles and her grandmother actually, and pooled together $12,000 to pay for a coding boot camp um, to a, a, a coding um, course. She took it about nine months ago and she completed it and she, then she came to us without a job and she's $12,000 out of pocket and she's coming to us looking for a job while the coding camp has its money and they're moving on. But they didn't really provide this person any labor market value. This option resonates with people who have been fighting and scratching and clawing for their piece of the American dream, but have also been asked to take the risk every single step of the way. Um, this resonates with them, every single person that I talk to who, who would be in this situation. Um, so here's our vision, working, again, working with UCSD to explore how this could work. Um, launching next year in early 2019, $650,000 of philanthropic capital we're going to use to launch four programs, Java programming, medical coding, um, data analytics, and business intelligence for 100 students. And then the next year, we're going to scale with $1.3 million of philanthropic capital to 200. 2021, we're going to diversify for a couple more programs in particular with our teacher shortage and a, a few specific occupations like uh, math and science as well as bilingual teachers. We think there's the economics really work to create a fund as well as a few other programs we're looking at. So we're going to be exploring that in 2021. 2022, uh, this is the best part. We're going to be able to be sustainable based on the financials that we've put together with philanthropic funds from those people going in the program in the beginning. And for my nonprofit people out there, every grant that you write, at the end it says, like, how are you going to sustain this work? And we, like, say the three Gs, right? We say, oh, we're going to do a golf tournament. We're going to do a gala. We're going to, like, hire a, a grant writer. Um, like, that, like, that's fine. Like, we'll, we'll still write that. I mean, I write that all the time. But... This is true sustainability where we're asking for those who the program has changed their life. 
We're asking them to pay it forward for the next cohort of people coming behind them. Um, and so that is real sustainability, um, and we can lose the golf tournaments. Uh, and then scale. I mean, you, it's not hard. I don't need to explain how you can see this model scaling um, with the data that we would get from it as every, every single month we're getting real income data on how some of our folks are doing in the programs and making adjustments. Um, and I'll just close with... It's absolutely time for this. It's time to rethink how we finance higher education. It's time to rethink how we link the cost of lifelong learning with the value it's offering to the students, the customers. And it's absolutely time to intentionally design that for inclusion. Thanks.